My name is Father Isaac Bradshaw. I'm an Anglican priest and an educator. And for as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by the weird and the anomalous. Whether it's a deep dive into number station or exploring stories from the paranormal or just ruminating on everyday things and events that don't quite add up. But I never heard how Christian theology interacts with the oddities of our universe. So I decided to do it myself. Welcome to the church at Montauk. At the far end of Long Island sits an abandoned military base. Initially opened in 1942 as a coast artillery station, Camp Hero is built with a reinforced concrete bunker to protect the 16-inch battleship guns defending Long Island Sound against a German invasion. To further fool the Nazis, a fake fishing village was built to hide the camp from the expected German invasion. Post-war, the Army removed the artillery in 1948 and turned the base over to the newly formed U.S. Air Force. The name was changed to Montauk Air Force Station. And there, the Air Force built a radar station and linked it to a network of other radar stations across the eastern seaboard in what would evolve into NORAD. In 1960, the largest, most powerful radar available to the United States Air Force was built and became operational at the Montauk Air Base. Part of the SAGE system, this radar transmitter was capable of detecting airborne objects over 200 miles away powerful enough to disrupt local television and radio broadcast, and was physically massive. The 126-foot-wide, 38-foot-tall antenna still looms over the Long Island coast, perched on top of a gray, 80-foot-tall concrete transmitter tower. The base was closed in 1981, the transmitter turned off, and the antenna left to freely turn as the wind changed. The base was transferred to the New York State Parks, and the base buildings fell into dereliction. But in 1988, an underground VHS tape began circulating among amateur UFO researchers and conspiracy theorists. Three men, Preston Nichols, Al Bielek, and Cameron Duncan, wove an alarming tale. Tales of clandestine experiments carried out in underground labs built under the decommissioned radar site at the very same Montauk Air Force Station. They called it the Montauk Project. According to the three men, during the 1970s, the underground base expanded to 12 levels and 700 staff, all secretly conducting experiments involving electromagnetic radiation, weather control, expanding psychic abilities, teleportation, and the eventual creation of a time tunnel 
capable of sending people to meet Jesus Christ, alter battles of the Civil War, and contact extraterrestrials. The creation of metahumans, the Jersey Devil, and the beginnings of the moon landing hoax were all ascribed to the Montauk Project. The entire project was allegedly shut down after 1983, when, depending on the source, either an alien monster named Junior came through the time tunnel, destroyed and ate the researchers, or the facility was simply closed by order of Congress, its former workers murdered, brainwashed, or moved to other, darker projects. Now, the story is quite convoluted, and trying to pin down a specific through line is difficult. But as far as I can tell, the story goes something like this. In the mid-1980s, Preston Nichols was suddenly gripped by the recognition that his memories were not quite what they should be. Supposedly, he was an electrical engineer for a Long Island electronics company, but people he didn't recognize kept speaking to him as if they had worked together for years. In 1984, Duncan Cameron and Preston Nichols became acquainted, and Cameron became involved in Nichols' alleged research into radio waves and psychic abilities. On a trip to the Montauk Station transmitter tower with Nichols, Cameron allegedly began spewing forth long-buried mind programming. He had been programmed to find Nichols, befriend him, then murder him, and destroy Nichols' lab. Thankfully, that didn't happen, but further work revealed something even more bizarre. Cameron had been one of the original members of the Philadelphia Experiment, an alleged attempt in 1943 to make a U.S. Navy destroyer become invisible. Now, if that sounds weird, hang on, because it gets much more, more. Through hypnosis and psychic unblocking, the pair of Cameron and Nichols now began to get a much more clear picture of the clandestine experiments they led and participated in beneath the Montauk Air Station. You see, Cameron and Bielek were revealed to be brothers. Bielek had been named Edward Cameron. Both had been stationed on the USS Eldridge, the destroyer used in the Philadelphia experiment in 19... During the purported invisibility experiment, both brothers leapt off the ship and into hyperspace, traveled through time, and landed in the year 2137. After recovering from journey, the brothers were sent back to the Montauk Research Station in the year 1983, where they are greeted by Dr. John von Neumann, a scientist who, among other things, supposedly died in 1957. But Dr. Neumann convinces them to return to 1943 and stop the Philadelphia experiment from occurring at all. Al makes it back, Duncan does not, and is conscripted as a powerful psychic into what would be known as the Montauk Project. Beginning in 1953, research had begun on what the story calls the Montauk Chair. This chair, 
when combined with electronics of various technologies, some not of this earth, was used to superpower the psychic ability of those sitting in the chair. Albilic alleges that he was in charge of this program. In the late 1970s, the chair began to function as a mind control device. Once in the chair, a psychic could project his thoughts, they would be transformed into radio waves, and transmitted to the target via the radar reflector above ground. Individuals or groups could be targeted. Animals could be caused to run mindlessly through Montauk Village. Or it could be used to cause short, two-hour-long crime waves. It was further discovered that Duncan Cameron could bend time. In other words, he would imagine something happening it would happen either earlier in the day or later, or altogether on a different timeline. By 1981, through tweaking of the technical specifics, Duncan Cameron was able to open a portal in time that allowed individuals to travel backwards and forwards. This same technique was employed to send travelers to Mars and explore what Preston Nichols referred to as a big pyramid on Mars. Now, this is where things tonally take a turn. Because the travelers through time weren't volunteers. Nichols, Cameron, and Bielek all made claims that the travelers were, at first, homeless men from New York, abducted and forced through mind control to travel through these time tunnels. But eventually, the project, for reasons unspecified by any of the three, turned to using teenage boys. They were kidnapped from their families and brainwashed and, in some reports, tortured and abused. These boys were used both as time travelers and with the intention of becoming Psy Warriors, warriors for a future army with strong psychic abilities. But on August 12, 1983, the whole project came crashing down. During an experiment, the time tunnel of the Montauk Project linked up with the accidental time travel of the Philadelphia experiment. This, to our three heroes' minds, was a problem, indicating that the project had gone too far. Relying on a previously agreed contingency, someone whispered, the time is now, to Cameron Duncan while he was sitting in the chair. At that moment, Duncan unleashed a monster from his subconscious. According to Nichols, this monster was hairy, somewhere between 9 and 30 feet tall and very hungry. As the monster unleashed by Duncan began wrecking the underground lab, the transmitter cables were cut by Nichols and a backpack acetylene torch, and the time tunnel collapsed. Six months later, the entire project was shut down. Cement was poured through the open spaces of the lab, the doors were sealed and welded. The workers, including Al Bielek, Preston Nichols, and Cameron Duncan, were all brainwashed and sent back into the world, none the wiser. Until, of course, the brainwashing was undone and the story could be told. It all sounds terribly goofy. It sounds like something out of a video game like Portal or Half-Life, both of which were partially based on this story. Or even something like Stranger Things, which was originally called Montauk in pre-production. 
Over time, the story has blossomed and bloomed into something like an omni-theory, a conspiracy so vast, so malevolent, that virtually all of post-war America is tainted by it. It truly is the granddaddy of all conspiracy theories. Depending on who you ask, there is not a single conspiracy theory out there that is untouched by the project. Now, just to be clear, I think this is all really, really bonkers. I don't really believe a word of it. There was no time travel experiments. Al Bielik isn't Cameron Duncan's brother. Neither one served on the USS Eldridge. And no thousands of teenage boys were sent into the year 6174 to investigate a statue of a golden horse. There was no trip to the Martian pyramids. And no monster named Junior. So why do so many people believe this myth? Because part of it is true. In 1976, the U.S. Senate's Church Committee released its report into the intelligence community's family jewels. These were long-held secrets, many illegal, unethical, or both that had been kept hidden from the public, Congress, and even the executive branch of the U.S. government. These included internal CIA projects like MKUltra, a plan to, well, you guessed it, investigate mind control with physical, psychological, chemical, and radiological sources, as well as the use of psychedelics to compromise foreign agents. According to the Church Report, at its most unrestrained, MKUltra laced drinks of unsuspecting U.S. citizens with LSD and observed their behavior in public or in safe houses inside the United States. Over 150 sub-projects were funded through the CIA's technical services staff, exploring ways to age up or age regress individuals, hypnosis, initiating and resisting so-called brainwashings, how to cause amnesia for events preceding and during an event, and surreptitious ways for introducing these. Perhaps the most chilling element of the MKUltra family is something called Subproject 68, run by Dr. Donald Ewan Cameron in Montreal. His goal was to cure schizophrenia by erasing existing memories and reprogramming the psyche of the patient, a technique he called depatterning. Dr. Cameron used LSD, paralytic drugs, sensory deprivation, and electroconvulsive therapy at 30 to 40 times the normal voltage. He further experimented with something he called psychic driving, a technique that placed test subjects into a medically induced coma, then played tape loops of simple instructions and statements. Patient side effects included incontinence, amnesia, forgetting how to walk or mistaking the doctors for their parents. Some had to learn basic skills and lived with retrograded amnesia for the rest of their lives. When the Canadian government allowed those affected by Subproject 68 to apply for compensation in 1992, over 300 people applied. The exact number involved in the subproject is unknown. But what is known is that not a single man, woman, 
or child involved in the experimentation ever gave informed consent. Not one. The Montauk myth operates on three distinct levels. The first is a kind of pseudo-metaphysical myth-making. Psychics, the ability to communicate and project matter into solid form, the time travel. The second is the kind of omni-conspiracy theory that ties in everything from stolen Nazi gold, the Operation Paperclip scientists taken from Germany after the Second World War, and hidden technology for the national defense. Area 51 as a continuation of the project. Now these two things I think we can easily dispense with. Whole elements of the story are lifted from old science fiction movies and even contemporaneous media. One villain in the later stories is actually called Hans von Gruber. That's right, in the Montauk universe, there's a German scientist with the same name as the die-hard villain played by Alan Rickman. The experience Al Bielek describes is page-by-page page identical to the movie The Philadelphia Experiment. When this was pointed out to him, Bielek simply shifted his story. Watching the movie unlocked the brainwashing. And that monster projected into existence by Cameron Duncan? Listen to this scene from Forbidden Planet in 1956. The first voice you hear will be Leslie Nielsen, and the second will be Dr. Mobius, played by Walter Pidgeon. Monsters from the id, huh? Monsters from the subconscious. Of course, that's what Doc meant. Morbius. A big machine, 8,000 cubic miles of Kleister relays, enough power for a whole population of creative geniuses, operated by remote control. Morbius, operated by the electromagnetic impulses of individual quell brains. To what purpose? In return, that ultimate machine would instantaneously project solid matter to any point on the planet, in any shape or color they might imagine, for any purpose, Morbius. Creation by mere thought. Why haven't I seen this all along? But like you, the Krell forgot one deadly danger, their own subconscious hate and lust for destruction. The beast, the mindless primitive. Even the Krell must have evolved from that beginning. And so those mindless beasts of the subconscious had access to a machine that could never be shut down. The secret devil of every soul on the planet all set free at once to loot and maim. And take revenge, Morbius, and kill. My poor Krell. After a million years of shining sanity, they could hardly have understood what power was destroying them. Your mind refuses to face a conclusion. What do you mean? Morbius. Morbius. What? Something is approaching from the southwest. It is now quite close. Sound familiar? It's this third bottom level that is most interesting to me. What we have in the Montauk Project myth is a focused subconscious expression of anxiety distilled from years and years of science fiction. 
anxiety over technical advance at the expense of our humanity, science over ethics, of an unrestrained desire for knowledge and scientific progress, that the high priesthoods of postmodern capitalism, psychiatry, the government or intelligence agencies, and radically advanced science are up to nefarious goings-on in the pursuit of knowledge and advancement. Not even the heroes of the tale can escape it. Remember that it wasn't the abuse of homeless men or the abuse and torture of teenage boys that troubled them. It was the idea that science of the project had gone too far. Montauk is something like a Promethean legend, but instead of a titan going to the gods and bringing back fire for us, it's us reaching up past our grip and trying to move past the limits the gods have placed on us. It's a myth of anxiety filtered through consumer media and ready to consume believers. Now I need to warn you because this next bit of the Montauk myth is very, very dark. Throughout the tale, Preston Nichols keeps referring to something he calls Reichian technology. I looked it up and it's a reference to a German psychiatrist named Wilhelm Reich. And to put it simply, Wilhelm Reich was a lunatic. Reich believed that our sexual energy, what he called orgone, was like a bioenergy that drove our health and could, if properly captured and attuned, be used to heal and treat cancer. He built Faraday cages of metal wool and plywood called orgone accumulators. Reich recommended that patients sit naked in the box and that this would allow the body to recharge the orgones in his or her body. Reich lacked a license to practice medicine in the United States and his claims for the health benefits of sitting in one of these accumulators got him into trouble with the FDA and eventually a charge of contempt of court that ended in a somewhat infamous episode where both his remaining accumulators and any books or materials containing the promised benefits of the accumulators were incinerated by agents of the FDA. The Reichian technology of the Montauk Project myth is a reference to these orgones. Remember the Montauk chair? When used, according to Preston Nichols, the subject had to be sexually excited for the primitive, pre-conscious mind to correctly project and open the time portal, or to do the business of mind control, or be brainwashed, or have the brainwashing removed. Once Nichols, Bielek, and Cameron began telling their tales, young men in their 20s convinced they had been one of the Montauk boys, began seeking out Preston Nichols, who claimed to be able to remove the brainwashing. These young men frequently faced addiction or homelessness. Many had memories of being abused and had traumatic experiences that they blamed on being part of this mythical, untrue project. Nichols would invite these men to the lab in his house, where he had constructed a replica of the Montauk chair. 
using radionics built from salvaged equipment from the actual Montauk Air Force Station. Nichols would bring them to the same state they were brainwashed in and supposedly undo the programming. The book of Revelation to St. John scares modern Christians. We tend to either disregard it altogether as some sort of weird book written at a weird time in Christian history, or we insist on reading it through the distorting prism of cable news. But if we dismiss that book, we dismiss the good news, the gospel of what God promises his people. You see, prophecy is not necessarily the prediction of future events. Prophecy is simply the message delivered from God through an earthly mouthpiece, an individual called to speak directly to God's people. The prophecy can be corrective or it can be encouraging. It can be a warning. It can be a promise. The book of Revelation is a prophecy. It's a call to the church of Christ and to those outside of it to remember the Father's promise to his children promises of salvation and justice to those who follow the ways of Jesus Christ, and judgment and destruction to those who harm God's children. The book, written partially as letters to specific churches, works in cycles. John sees great visions of beasts and angelic beings, calling out for the justice of God against those who work against him and his church. Christ hears the prayers of his people, renders judgment against the evildoers, and then the cycle starts again until a great city is destroyed. In the middle of the book, John receives a vision of the idolatress of Babylon. She's described as being clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. She rides a seven-headed beast and is drunk on the blood of those who followed Christ rather than the idolatrist. The angel showing John these visions identifies her. The woman, the angel says in chapter 17, is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. In chapter 18, this city is destroyed by an angel of the Lord. The kings of the earth mourn the loss of the beautiful city, full of all the luxurious items an ancient writer could describe. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet, all kinds of scented wood, all articles of ivory, all articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, choice flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, slaves and human lives. For John, this city was a one-to-one symbol of Rome, the city that persecuted the followers of Jesus 
that made its wealth buying and selling human flesh in slaves. The angel tells John to rejoice in the city's total and final destruction. The saints in heaven, persecuted and killed by the idolatrous, say, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great idolatrous who corrupted the earth and avenged on her the blood of his servants. It is at this point that the cycle is broken. The dead are awoken and join with an army of heaven led by Jesus Christ to destroy evil once and for all. After this battle, a great feast is held. An angel descends from heaven to imprison Satan in a pit, and Jesus' reign begins on the earth. This is the gospel. The Montauk myth is, in a way, a prophecy. Not of something that will be, but of something that is. We are not persecuted like the early church, but we live and worship inside a consumer system that seeks wealth and power and luxury and all things at the expense of our souls and human lives. We risk health and human life and human flourishing on the altar of getting new stuff, including the new stuff of science or political expediency. And we forget this line from Revelation. For in one hour, all this wealth has been laid to waste. The project created in the Florid story by Nichols, Bielik, and Cameron resonates with us because at its very core, the project is a metaphor for our own existence. Pulled into consumerism, we participate in a vast experiment. How much can we control? How much can we impose on others? How can we sell to others? How many human lives can we consume? And how do we avoid being corrupted? If the Montauk story tells us anything, it's that we're incapable of not being corrupted. Don't forget, elements of this story actually happened. And if nothing else, the myth reflects that dark, participatory aspect of human nature with total accuracy. A real-life doctor tried to treat mental illness with depatterning. A real-life civil servant approved MKUltra. A real-life storyteller told addicted young men that the reason for their addiction was a false trauma and that could, he could fix this false trauma by molesting them. Real people, real decisions, that great city, fed by the blood of innocence, is real. But it's a partial myth. Where the Christian story speaks into the dark science fiction nihilism of the project myth is that one day God will give judgment for you. One day the system represented by the Montauk Project will be bound and destroyed by the one who died and then bound and destroyed death itself. I call this podcast The Church at Montauk. And there's a couple of layers to that. There was, in fact, a church on the Montauk Air Station. It was built as part of the camouflage for the original Coast Artillery Base. But more importantly, the church at Montauk represents the way in which Christianity can interact with these myths. In fact, 
one definition of a priest is that of a bridge builder, of standing between things known and things unknown. The church should be at Montauk, translating the myths, listening where the truth is spoken, speaking with charity and clarity where the truth is not present, and loving the world in all its weirdness and the anomalies with which we live. I'm Father Isaac. Hit us up on Twitter at Montauk Church and stay tuned for more adventures with The Church at Montauk.